Thank you for tuning in. You're listening to Fintech Cafe, and I'm your host, Ambika Sharma. Fintech Cafe is a live show that takes place every Wednesday at 5 p.m. Pacific on Clubhouse with a live audience. So what you're listening to is a recorded session of that live conversation. Today is episode 43, and our topic is stablecoins. For this conversation, we're joined by the Chief Strategy Officer of Circle, Dante Disparte. This is our first conversation on stablecoins, and we'll cover evolution and use cases of stablecoins, regulatory landscape, and an opportunity for a meaningful social impact to uplift the unbanked population globally. So thank you for joining in, and let's kick it off. I'll pass the baton next to my co-host for her introduction. Thanks, Ambika. Co-host uh, with Ambika on Fintech Cafe every Wednesday evening. Uh, very excited to tune in every time and especially today. Welcome, Dante, to our call. And just in terms of introductions, I don't think I'm going to be able to do justice, but you are currently the Chief Strategy Officer and Head of Global Policy at Circle. Previously, you were a founding executive at Diem, which was Facebook or Meta's entity for permission blockchain-based stablecoin payment system. Wow, mouthful there. You are an industry specialist, industry leader, visionary on the topic of stablecoins and emerging payment technologies. Again, really glad you could join us and educate us on this emerging state. Any Anything to add to that or in terms of introductions? <laughs> no, I think that's that's incredibly, incredibly generous. Thank you both. Not much more to add, except for perhaps just to add the word of, you know, I'm, I'm first and foremost a pragmatist and that we cannot solve for very big market failures and, and global sort of challenges with purity tests on either direction. So I think what people will hear of the conversation tonight is, is hopefully a very pragmatic, focused discussion on what does it actually mean to be a stablecoin issuer and how do they fit in a financial system that is otherwise broke bank holidays. I love that bank holidays. Good reminder. <laughs> All right. Well, so kicking off, could we just kind of touch on how you got into the specific field of work, Dante? I mean, I know you've come a few different ways, but why stable coins? Yeah, I mean, well, so so it's sort of back to the pragmatism point I said at the outset there. The My original foray into the crypto sort of rabbit hole was through the risk and insurance markets, right? A lot of early companies in this market segment were either looking and turning to insurance out of necessity or because they were looking for the validation of being underwritten. And so one of the interesting, consistent quests that the crypto industry has been um, pursuing is legitimization. And in the early days, part of that came with, you know, there were there were companies that wanted to be able to prove that they're crypto asset or their digital wallet was insured. And so that that became kind of a differentiator in the marketplace. So that was my first foray. And then if you can transition a risk to someone else's balance sheet and and make it sort of economically viable, then you have to understand how it is likely to fail at a reasonably granular level. And that was my first foray into the market segment was looking at cyber risk and all kinds of complex risks. And what I found was that a lot of the, the businesses in the segment, and that may very well be the case still till today, were not underwritable, right? They were slick websites, a lot of vaporware, but there wasn't sufficient you know, structure, if you will, neither managerial nor otherwise, to fully underwrite it. And, and so, so that was my first foray into the market segment. And at the same time, I spent an enormous amount of time 
in the risk and resilience world, thinking about all of the big problems on the planet where, but for technology, we were really kind of running out of solutions. And so I've always come at it from that angle of, if we get it right, we could do a lot of good for a lot of people. But if we get it wrong, then you know we're, we're just kind of throwing code at a problem that we haven't solved with brick and mortar banking or other systems. And then more specifically in your current role, Dante, what are you responsible for? <laughs> I feel like, you know, well, you know, I, I only... That's not, I coming, only, more, that's not uh, coming from a questioning what you do, but more, it seems like you're doing... No, something. no, no. I laugh. I laugh because like, you know, there are days my grandmother taught me that if, you, if nothing is beneath you, you could do anything. But that may, that, that may also mean that there might be days where I'm sweeping the floor and locking up the gate or the door as, as the event clears. But so at Circle, you know, I, I'm, I'm, I'm responsible for corporate strategy overall. But as you know, in any self-respecting company, strategy is a team sport. I'm also responsible for regulatory strategy, global policy, and corporate communications. And then the last pillar of my, of my work in the org that I'm designing is what we call Circle Impact. How do we demonstrate the art of the possible in the interest of humanity, given all the great technologies, the great tools, the great resources? And frankly, at the core of our business is the most trusted dollar digital currency, aka stablecoin, um, in circulation today. So we don't want any of that to be in vain. And so, so th those are the kind of pillars of my work at uh, at Circle. Oh, fantastic! And that the circle of impact that's really an oh the circle impact is really fascinating is that around the concept of the inclusivity or how do we think about that pillar yeah so think of it think of it like and and for those who know me who, who might be listening now live or who may be listening in the recording later you might understand that when you when i joined the libra project later rebranded as dm my my broad argument for why I cared so much about that issue, that 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 initiative was that I cared more about financial inclusion than people disliked or distrusted Facebook, and so coming to Circle at some level, you know, I'm I it's moving from an aspirational project to an operational one, but in many ways the idea of financial inclusion, the idea of raising prosperity for people is very personal to me, but also it, it's the core of Circle's vision and mission statement. So I, I almost get a second act as a leader. I get to sort of get a second chance at bat to deliver to the planet a more inclusive financial system powered by blockchain and powered by stable coins. And interestingly, Dante, I, I meant to ask about this. It sounds like it is being reprised though, right? Where Aptos is trying to, I think, continue the legacy that you built with DM. I'm not sure if you caught that. Oh, no, 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 Maybe. totally. No. And, and yeah. <laughs> the, the amazing thing, it's it's such a fascinating environment right now that, that you know, to kind of reflect again on the DM journey, I would have done it all over again in hindsight. It, it sort of on the one hand was a project big enough and controversial enough, win, lose, or draw, it would change the world. But on the other hand, it was a heat shield, a very powerful heat shield that drew the ire <laughs> and the enthusiasm and the interest of the planet while the developers and everybody else was building. And so if you think about it, companies like FTX did not exist in, in that short window of time. And now a lot of former DM alumni are building really, really extraordinary companies with unicorn valuations, Mistin Labs, Aptos, and I, I suspect there will be many more. So that's amazing. The fact that there is a standards war and the fact that, you know, now 
the, these design choices are being really deeply embedded into traditional banking. And in some respects, the blockchain domain and the use of stablecoins is no longer fringe finance. It's now increasingly being seen as like critical to the core. And, and we've had many, many, many Senate hearings and House hearings and other conversations uh, to prove the point. Yeah, maybe a little ahead of time or maybe the branding, but yeah, definitely a foundation. So uh, before we uh, dive into the circle, I did want to call out and I put this in the lobby link too. You are also an author. No, you don't cease to surprise us <laughs> with everything that you have up your sleeve. You published the Global Risk Agility and Decision Making. I think you talked about this agile development framework to risk management being in a, a big bank that resonates well uh, with some of us. How how are you thinking about this in terms of leveraging these frameworks? And would love to hear your um, take on the book. And sorry, I'm just yeah. going. Let me know if it's enough. No, 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 not at all. I, I mean, so well, thank you for that. The book, the book at a period of time was a bestseller, and you could argue that. Today, it's the type of book where if you read it, it would have, you know, you could argue many of the things that the world faces at this particular point in time, pandemic threats, cyber risk run amok, climate risk run amok, geopolitical and socioeconomic risks, all were the, the protagonist in the book. And I wrote it thinking these things were on the horizon. My only sort of mistake in hindsight was that that, that horizon was, was tragically much shorter than we in fact have as a planet. And the core thesis of it was, you know, in a world where companies, especially large ones like your own perhaps, are best practitioners in risk management, that risk management is all too often a decision avoidance framework as opposed to a, an enablement framework, a, a something that drives decision support and action. And so that was really the thesis of the book in a nutshell. And, you know, so much of my work, frankly, even in the blockchain and crypto assets world is informed by this notion of, you know, the United States moved $6.6 trillion in the first wave of COVID-19 response of taxpayer funded money to prop up the economy. I liken that to a great correction. We've had a great recession and we had a great depression in our country, but I liken this particular wave as a great a great correction because what it revealed was that we as a society, despite the fact that we think we're a fortress nation, have a lot of pre-pandemic vulnerabilities which were revealed by this crisis, right? We couldn't, we, we had to ask people to vote, you couldn't mail in your ballot <clears throat> or, you know, the only option was to wait in line despite quarantines and social distancing. And we couldn't move money at scale in real time to the people who needed it most, right? And so whether you like crypto or not, the idea that you can get fast, auditable, real-time payments is a national security issue. And the pandemic showed that it was a national vulnerability. And no foreign power visited that upon the United States. It was a lack of competition, a lack of imagination, and a lack of alternatives into the payments landscape. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. The last two years have probably accelerated a lot more things and highlighted some of those needs. I did like the decision avoidance framework. Too. That rings very true. I think uh, we also like to use the analogy of the stop button, uh, the no button. Right? Yeah. <laughs> say no. When in doubt, say no. <clears throat> right. Well, there are Americans and there are Americans. And so <laughs> I fall in the I fall in the in the camp of we have to create 
I think societally a bit of a, a bit of a can-do spirit instead of just observing problems. All right, I'm gonna go over to you. Yeah, I was reflecting. I'm like, I think you should come speak at some of the large banks about your thoughts on this. But I don't want to digress. I'll stay put to the script. Okay, so you were talking about problem statement. I guess most useful question would here be: Let's talk about circle. What is circle, and what is the problem statement that you're targeting? For for circle specifically, yes, yeah. So so circle circle is is really just an extraordinary company, right? It it's one of these OG companies in the digital assets market that has gone through a number of interesting rounds of reinvention, and has really found not only I think an extraordinary product market fit, but a but a way of doing it and building it, despite the fact that I think we're a category category creator as a company, we've managed to you know, in my mind, build the closest proxy to a US dollar, but uploading it onto the internet. And so beginning where where we kind of left off in the last wave, think about what you can and cannot do with a physical dollar, right? It's it's the, the ultimate form of censorship resistant peer-to-peer payments, if we called it an innovation. However, in the context of a pandemic, it, it's its limitations are powerfully revealed, right? I was on a panel with the Bank for International Settlements not long ago, and one of the folks said on the call on on that discussion, if you were going to a regulator with the innovation called physical cash today, by today's compliance standards, they would likely not authorize it on three grounds. The first, its limitations physically. You could you could transmission it as far as your arm could reach. The second is that it's backward looking and opaque, therefore it's a haven for nefarious activity. The third, and ironically, many countries resorted to laundering their money physically because of it, is that it's a vector for spreading disease. And, and so, so you have these three limitations really showing up all at once. And so what Circle is trying to solve for with USDC, our, our digital currency, <clears throat> is how do you protect and preserve the fundamental trust in the US dollar, but import to it the powers of the internet? right where where we can analogize very easily to the internet was powerful for removing friction in communication and information sharing and on top of that core layer a whole generation of companies ideas have reached escape velocity and changed the planet and created some multi-trillion dollar industries along the way now at the same time that first wave of the internet has also opened up a Pandora's box of misinformation, disinformation, all kinds of social ills, cyber risks, and so on. A dollar on the internet that is also trusted can do a lot of good things, but it could also, like any movement of money in the financial system, can also potentially create risks. And that's where Circle's core belief that financial inclusion, innovation, and financial integrity are not trade-offs. We really, really try to demonstrate that all the time in a host of ways, and you know, I think those could become parts of this conversation tonight, is how do you then get it well and get it right? If stable coins are gonna become a critical core part of the global financial system, how do we make sure that you have trust in them? And that you, know, you and I as retail consumers are not subjected to internet funny money or worse. So would you, so now I wanna have a little primer, I guess, stable coins 101. The first question that I have is, would you say, USDC uh, is a digital currency, a form of digital currency, or is a financial instrument or something else? Yeah. So, so economists have a very clear definition about money. And honestly, 
the, the crypto industry in some ways labors under an enormous brand problem and an enormous jargon problem. So what we talk about is not entirely clear to many people. And then we wonder why senators write letters calling out the industry. So I, I would be the first to argue that not all stable coins are created equal, but the term originates from the idea that the, the original in the crypto industry was hypervolatility. And famous examples of buyers and spenders remorse like Bitcoin Pizza Day are teachable moments that when an asset is scarce and it is highly speculative and it is economically structured with hypervolatility, then it's, it's a terrible medium of exchange. And in order to be a currency, you have to meet three definitions, a medium of exchange, a store of value, and a unit of measure. And on, on many, many of these three pillars, digital assets up until a certain point in time had failed that test. And then the other test they have to enjoy, in my humble opinion, if they're, if they're really going to be used as a currency, is they have to be trusted and, and, and not sort of introduce this idea that, you know, I won't either, I, I will lose money if I spend it today versus make money if I hold it. So we think of USDC very much as a dollar digital currency, right? <clears throat> Where if you used it for buying a cup of coffee, it would enjoy price parity to the dollar. But with the, 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 again, the lower costs and the high trust and the, high, the, the reduced friction of being able to spend that dollar on the internet. So that's, that's the design. We go through extraordinarily painful lengths to ensure that that is the case from the economics to the trust and transparency to the ability to then support USDC across multiple public blockchains, which have powerful, powerful uh, ways of combating the walled garden problem in traditional payment systems. Nice. So you mentioned three things in order to qualify for a currency, medium of exchange, unit of measure and store of value. So I'll remember that as I ask you the next set of questions. <laughs> um, I want to make sure, you know, as a good economic student, I want to make sure my assumptions are correct. Um, well, and, and then if I if I could, I'm get just one tiny interjection, because I learned this also the very, very hard way, which is that money and the creation of money is a sovereign activity. And word to the wise to anybody listening, if you want to kick up a hornet's nest of central banks not being happy with you all over the world, put out a white paper under the tagline reinventing money and then watch what happens. <laughs> so so I when I when I when I'm clear about those three standards for currency, I'm also going to be very very clear with the group that money is a sovereign act and it should remain so. <laughs> you stole my next question. Clearly you go on lots of these panels. Okay, well actually my next question was what gives an entity a right to issue digital currency or a currency and you already answered which is yeah. sovereign activity. But then how is it different from what you're doing at Circle? And uh, let me ask differently. Is it different sure. because you're pegging it to a currency mm. that is issued by a sovereign entity? Okay, so here's, here's where we get to peel back the onion a few more times. And as you know, when you peel an onion, you may cry. So here's one of the terrible ironies. The central bankers may not necessarily like me, but they keep inviting me back because I often point out some of the ironies in money. That yes, it is a sovereign activity. Yes, sovereigns are often in democracies, at least, endowed with their powers by the people. But 50% of the planet is subjected to a local currency environment that is hyperinflationary. And in the extreme, the money they have is not worth the paper it is printed on. So then how do you reconcile a world in which people are given access to sovereign money 
and that if it is in fact a public good and it and if it is in fact your money why do you have to ask someone for permission to send it and you have to pay people to hold it for you so there's a couple of conundrums with money that go well 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 beyond those that we would talk about in stable coins and and i think the public sector has to hold up a mirror to itself as much as they're pointing fingers to others and that's one of the interesting most fascinating pieces of the crypto puzzle is that because it creates this pathway for self-sovereign money the bitcoin maximalists make that argument that in the extreme and at scale ukraine proves it afghanistan proves it venezuela proves it when when all else fails you have a form of money with digitally native assets that travels with you even when the functional public authorities fail and the the traditional banking system fails so if you if you're long on the idea that money is a public good then you would want to preserve that kind of air gap between the central bank the banks the banking systems your wallet and how you spend your money and that's why so much of this industry is still a protest vote to the way things are working today got it okay hmm okay so how does it work all right sorry let me reframe my question then for stable coin it's pegged to a dollar especially the circle stable coin you have you have your stablecoin pegged to various currencies, you, United States dollars being one of them, but you also have it pegged to an asset such as, or a commodity such as gold, right? So no, U, USDC is strictly a dollar. And I think it's a fair question because one of the, you know, if you were auditing a giant company or you were auditing the promises of a company, that was putting out an instrument into the market that was purporting to be stable and a medium of exchange and all those wonderful things we just discussed, then the most fundamental and important question, and frankly, most stable coins in circulation on the planet today fail this very simple test. <laughs> and that test is show me the money. And so in Circle's case, we are strictly backing USDC, every single one of them in circulation with cash, and short dated US treasuries. These are the two safest and most liquid assets available, short of direct Fed custody of USDC reserves. And so in that sense, to the question of monetary policy, and what does Circle do? And how is it different? And how are you not also minting a currency of your own? Is that we do not have a monetary policy. We do not control whether it's inflationary or deflationary, nor the money supply. Instead, what we're doing is importing the monetary policy of the Fed and only minting and burning USDC based on supply and demand factors. That's it. And so the other really critical piece of the puzzle is in a world where stablecoin issuers are facing a lot of scrutiny and I think very fair public pressure for transparency, auditability, trust and disclosure, we're also really driving a model that is setting a standard there that I think even banks could learn from. Because when you get money issued from a bank, you're effectively getting fractional reserve money. The, you lend a dollar in, your, in the form of your deposit to the bank. The bank then takes 80 cents on that dollar and creates credit and, lo and loans and the money multiplier, creating another form of money that's in circulation on the planet. But the reason banks need FDIC insurance is because banks are opaque they're not registering their transactions in a public manner, and they have no disclosure requirement to always keep your dollar 100% on account. We, on the other hand, have zero money creation, zero fractionalization of reserves, 
And the idea is that at all times, USDC has sufficient reserves to meet the demands outstanding. Got it. Thank you. That's very helpful. You mentioned the use of technology and how that's different uh, from a regular currency that's being issued by an entity such as or controlled by Federal Reserve and you know printed by the Treasury. So my question is, because it relies on technology, what if there's no mobile network or mobile networks are down or so there's a situation like Ukraine? Could you access your stable coin? Yeah, no, that's that's a that's an amazing question, and it kind of it dovetails a little bit into my risk and resilience and national security hat, which is that if you think about how much of the infrastructure on which quote unquote modern finance rides is antiquated or labors under single points of failure, and I can give you just a couple of examples. Recall the Equifax data breach a couple of years ago, <clears throat> where 100% of the US workforce, 150 million people and counting, were subjected to a lifelong data and privacy risk because their, their private information was breached because all of it was housed in a single database, a honeypot database. Remember the swift exploit of the New York Fed, where hackers from Bangladesh were able to create an exploit and nearly got away with a billion dollars, but a correspondent banker in Germany noticed that the word foundation was misspelled and was able to stop the exploit. The Fedwire system has had flash crashes <clears throat> stopping trillions of dollars of transactions occasionally, presumably because someone said, what does this plug do at the Fed? And so the idea is not substitution of any of these systems. It's to create payment systems optionality. I'm a big believer in cash because to your point, when the lights are out, it's really good to have cash. But I'm also a big believer in financial markets infrastructure that is distributed and therefore has an inherent disaster proofing, i.e. blockchains, public blockchains specifically, invite for inherent disaster proofing. The Ukrainian example is really extreme, but it highlights the power of disaster resistance because a, a wallet was established by the Ukrainian government in the first week of the conflict. That wallet has received more than $150 million thus far in counting in digital assets when all other systems failed. Yeah, I mean, this is so much information my head is spinning. Okay, so I'm also nearing the end of my section on monetary policy. So last question that I would ask on this is, because I'm still not clear on whether truly is this a currency or a financial instrument, you know, the SEC goes back to the Howey test which is, you know, it's a famous Supreme Court case. Does it pass the Howey test? If so, then it's a financial instrument. I guess I would like to ask you that question as, a, as the closing question for sure. the monetary policy section. Do you sure. think uh, USDC passes the Howey test? Well, so, so <laughs> the good news is, you know, I'm not a lawyer and I'm not a securities expert, but I often have to play one on TV. The simple thing is a security is something in which the holder of the security expects through the efforts of others, the likelihood of a return or a profit. The holder of a USDC token or a coin um, or a digital currency, we could classify it in many ways, has no other expectation, including when they wanna redeem it, other than receiving a dollar, period. And, and I think there, there is a very, very clear, uh, I hope, not only precedent in, in the utility of stablecoins as payments and in the utility of USDC specifically as not only being a payment instrument for all of the host of digitally native uses that it supports today, but also creating a bridge between 
digital finance and real world finance. So companies like MoneyGram on the Stellar blockchain are using USDC for remittances across the world. Visa and MasterCard as household name payments companies are using USDC for their own digitally native and crypto native payments platform. So, so we think through and through and unequivocally, we're on the right side of the how we test and on the right side of being a security. Awesome. Thank you. Over to you, Manisha, for your next section. All right. So getting into a little bit of how this impacts uh, us in our day to day, could you provide Dante, I mean, just digging further into Circle, really appreciate the foundation we've set around stable coins. How do we think about the leveraging Circle and uh, the Circle back to you as a stable coin from a day-to-day transaction? I think you've talked about mm-hmm. improving the payments interoperability through some of this. So could you give us a bit of a use case around it, maybe in one of those uh, 50% inflationary environments? <laughs> yeah, it's 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 hard not to think of those use cases right now, especially because this is uh, preoccupying an enormous amount of my own time. But a real-world example is is obviously being able to establish humanitarian payment corridors, right? I had to give testimony in Congress and in, in the Senate at the close of last year about these issues. And in, a, in, a, in the congressional hearing, I was actually invited as a witness to discuss the effects of climate change on Africa. And one of the points I made as a policy recommendation for the United States is the use of blockchain-based payment systems as the, the the alternative for moving U.S. taxpayer-funded aid and disaster assistance, right? The worst thing you could possibly do, notwithstanding the fact that obviously physical cash has a place on the planet, but if you care about corruption, bribery, and fraud, and you really want to micro-target capital or funding to a beneficiary, there is no better alternative than mobile native payments where the transaction is ledgered on a public blockchain. If you care about transparency, you care about speed, and you also care about micro-targeting uh, a beneficiary in sort of real time with high auditability and high fidelity, then we think these networks are really additive to creating a new humanitarian blueprint. So this is something I'm working on incredibly deeply right now. Circle has done this already. We, we partnered with doctors in Venezuela during the height of the crisis in Venezuela not long ago to establish a USDC-denominated payment corridor where remittances and cross-border payments could be sent as cheaply and as freely as people would otherwise send a message, an instant message. So we think we think the, that, that art of the possible is only in its opening innings, but it should become a part of the policy landscape and the humanitarian intervention landscape. Got it. And so while uh, Circle itself is primarily more on the B2B side, the use of USDC goes a little more to the consumer. One of the videos I was watching was around, I think, Brazil, where with the hyperinflation, they are looking to immediately convert their paycheck into dollars, right? Because that gives them the stability, but then they don't find the dollars. So would that be another use case, Dante, where they would be able to leverage a stable coin? conversion option or uh, am i thinking about them no well so so you are and of course my my imf and world bank and monetary policy people will not be happy with the concept <laughs> that you could contribute to digital dollarization but but the topic of why does the dollar remain the global reserve currency and remain an instrument of trust i think that argument should extend to the dollar including in its in a, in a digitally native form right this concept of flight to quality, flight to safety plays out. The 
so so I, I'm very, very deeply supportive of cases where you're seeing the use of digital assets and crypto and stable coins to lower fundamental cost and improve financial inclusion. Like if you ask me, that is the only mission that I am on. Every other use case is great. The crypto capital markets use case, the the bustness and the demands for settlement finality and speed of trading activities is really powerful, but those are all bootstrap use cases to get these technologies to a stage where they could serve humanity. And there's no better case than that one, right? Where, where you're otherwise on the margins, otherwise in the shadows, but the brick and mortar banking system can no longer serve you viably and in a trusted way. I don't think the planet has a better choice than mobile money, e-money, stable coins, blockchain-based payment systems in open interoperable environments. And could I ask in terms of that inclusionary use case, are we not having as much of an opportunity domestically? Because it seems like some of the recent numbers that I see around use of stable coins and crypto is definitely not serving the need of inclusion, right? It seems to be a little more concentrated in terms of use within a demographic that maybe is not the target from an inclusionary standpoint, but internationally, it seems like it's serving its purpose. So where is the gap in... um, Mm creating that inclusion here? Yeah. So, so that's such a great and powerful question, Monisha. The, I only had my aha moment on how to answer it when I was sitting across Senator Brown in the Senate Banking Committee. <laughs> you could, and if you rewatch the tape, you probably will see it in my eyes when I'm like, it finally dawned on me how to answer that question. And the answer is neither a physical dollar nor a digital currency, no matter how well it is designed, has agency. And if you care about solving financial exclusion issues, which are literally systemic and systematic and endemic, and you don't have to go to the Horn of Africa and you don't have to go south of the equator to figure it out, you could do it in Washington, D.C., a city that gets 60% of its kids through high school, then you have to actually build a value chain around driving financial inclusion, right? So we, we launched a program called Circle Impact precisely for that reason, right? That, that if I just cared about it, but did nothing, then nothing would happen. And so a three-year-old innovation has not had nearly enough time on the planet to quote unquote, solve a poverty problem that the banks and the global technocrats and the World Bank and the IMF and the UN have had a monopoly in solving for nearly a hundred years, but give, give me time. And <laughs> so Circle Impact is meant to solve that problem, but informed by the fact that dollars and digital currencies do not have agency on their own. What digital currencies do, however, that dollars do not, and what digital currencies do that a banking system that goes to sleep does not, is we work in a lower cost manner and we work in an open source technology manner. So there's, we're removing two of the major excuses for serving people who are excluded. It's expensive to be banked and it's costly to send money. We're trying to solve for those two at the technological layer. And then we're adding this additional dimension of intentionality to partnering with agent, humanitarian agencies, to putting circle money in community banks and minority depository institutions across the US, and in driving uh, digital financial literacy work so people are not preyed upon by internet funny money and slick websites. Got it, we'll be watching. <laughs> exactly, in fact, in yeah. fact, you know, I, I really wouldn't mind the additional public pressure. Keep <laughs> us honest and keep me honest to these promises because these are the ones that matter. We've got, a, we've got about 100 people who've come and gone so far, so definitely. <laughs> Good. Tell them, all of you, keep, keep us honest. Yeah. Fantastic. <laughs> and then in terms of 
regulation. I know, and you recently found this article in the Project Syndicate where I quote uh, you've written, but now the U.S. president has issued the executive order on ensuring responsible development of digital assets. A sleeping giant has awoken. Sort of related to some of what we've said, the sleeping giant obviously being United States. Could you talk to us mm. about the significance of this order and your take on it? Yeah, so so I, I, I'm I'm very very happy about it, and and I, I kind of analogize why it is a sleeping giant and why it is an important moment to other examples where the United States may have been late. We were late to renewable energy, for example, right? We were we remain a very carbon intensive energy economy, but when the United States decided it's time to really get into the renewable energy in a serious way, we're now really transitioning a big percentage of our energy matrix to renewable sources. California is just one example, you know, has a has a, a model and a policy on new homes have to have solar panel, for example, enablement across across new home starts in, in the state. And the same holds true, for example, with the hundred year reign of the internal combustion engine that, you know, a challenger business like a Tesla can emerge that, that can contest the dominance of the internal combustion engine, but doesn't kill mobility. So here we are late to the game in terms of having a whole of government strategy for blockchain and digital assets. China, by contrast, in no small measure, courtesy to my last project, has a national blockchain strategy, has accelerated the mobilization of the ECNY digital currency or central bank digital currency from the People's Bank of China in no small measure in response to my prior project, but also in response to having a whole of government strategy for innovation in this domain. And so while the U.S. may be late to the party, and some would argue, you know, we're losing ground because the Fed isn't launching a digital dollar of its own, the, the fact that the White House is calling for this whole of government approach on technology like this is critical because too much of the blockchain conversation has been dominated by financial services rather than thinking through all of the other use cases of a form of technology that could preserve and protect your and my rights and preserve and protect new models of internet ownership. That's much bigger than money and payments, much bigger than capital markets and Wall Street. And so I'm really encouraged by what that signal means. And, and I think we have a shot at winning the digital currency space race as a result. Great. And I think in the same article, and just in general, the reason why some of the we're kind of late to the game is, I suppose, some of the potential risks, right? I think one of uh, the competitors was fined $41 million by CFTC because of some of the issues around reserves. I know you had very clearly called out about how Circle manages that, manages to that risk. But curious about, you know, with your risk hat, how you're thinking about some of the risks associated while it's solving for a lot of inherent systemic issues. There also seems to be potential risk to watch out for and mitigate or manage against. Well, there's no question. And, and so here too, the nuance of the state v. the private sector, I think is really critical because we do a lot of harm in our society under the guise of consumer protection. So if to be banked is expensive and you're telling people who are living check to check for whom now they have to contend with no cost of living adjustment in their payroll to the extent they're even gainfully employed or fully employed, they now need to add the compounding effect of inflation. The, the idea that 
to be banked cost money to me i find offensive right and and so on that score the the advent of challenger technologies challenger industries and challenger ideas are really powerful and our government tends to do especially our federal regulators tends to do a lot of harm to the very people they're trying to serve a good friend of mine chris brummer you know argues that the sec for example has no financial inclusion mandate and so guess what it, to take a company public is is only the domain of the very well healed and guess what to participate in the best wealth creating products wall street has to offer you need to already be the type of investor who could absorb financial losses aka you're sophisticated that's a proxy for you need to have had money in the first place to make money work for you i think a lot of those things are problematic and frankly this is a lot of the reason the bank lobby and for every me in washington there's 13 people who think status quo is just fine we we have to continue making a very deep appeal for the areas of these traditional systems and traditional protections and traditional regulations that are failing the economy failing people and ultimately going to start to erode us national economic competitiveness and security and so on those scores i i think we have some very strong arguments to make and mercifully i'm no longer alone frankly in making some of those arguments so you mentioned the sec has no mandate around financial inclusion i agree otherwise i disagree with the whole accredited investor uh, definition it keeps a lot of people out from making investments that they could if you know there there wasn't this arbitrary threshold of like how much money you made the last two years or yeah. your net worth <laughs> it's absurd <laughs> yes so we are at 5:45 Pacific. We are supposed to open, but I want to ask you a concluding question and then we can open up to the audience. And that concluding question is this. Stablecoin, you know, it's a newer emerging technology. As we as retail customer, as we try to understand, there are a lot of different stablecoins. Circle is one of the main ones, but you have competitors. The competitors recently paid 41 million dollars in fine to the CFTC for lying about their reserve holdings. But in general, just at the high level at the society level, when we look at different stable coins how should a retail customer evaluate what should i look for mm. what are some tenets so i can have yeah. an intelligent conversation and then yeah. after that we'll open up to the audience sure no that that's such a great question and and frankly that's the breakthrough moment the the presumption of trust is the most fundamental question in the movement of money whether you're a bank whether you're a technology firm whether you're a fintech or whether you're a stable coin issuer and all i can say is there is a reason when we were summoned to the senate or summoned to the house or summoned to the white house or summoned to anybody anywhere on the planet to defend describe and protect what we are doing and how we are doing it the mere fact that we could show up tells you everything and and i do think the utility of stable coins adding additionality and optionality to people's payments options will continue to prove out and and already i think are very much reaching that tipping point where today 200 million plus people are involved in some form or function in the digital assets economy and their involvement isn't merely about speculation it's been the best performing asset class in the last decade and it has created a lot of wealth for people that by no other means than a little bit of technological savvy were able to do things that they couldn't do in traditional markets awesome well with then uh, with that we can open up to the audience so if you like to come on stage ask your question or share your thoughts please do so looks like john's already on so john just give me a minute so yes you can raise your hand william and john are coming oh sorry william can you try again there we go 
Or if you are in a loud area and it's not, you know, you want to send us your question, you can send the question to me or Manisha and we'll read it on your behalf. But because we are recording, we will have to state your name. So those who are joining, John and William, we can start with you. Tell us who you are and where you're dialing in from. And then please share your thoughts or questions respectfully. So John, over to you. Hi, I'm John. I am calling in from South Carolina. Dante, it's a pleasure to meet you. Thank you, John. So Dante, I've been involved in the, uh, in the community since 2014 and had the opportunity to sit down with Jeremy in 2015. My first question to you would be this. Do you consider the USDC to be a centralized digital currency or a decentralized currency? Yeah, that, it's a good question. John, I have, a, I have several years worth of writing at peak, maybe five or seven articles a month in Forbes on these topics. And there's one particular piece in there around to blockchain or not to blockchain. And there's another piece that sort of addresses the centralization versus decentralization question. So by the purities test, Circle and USDC are stable coins that have a central actor that is accountable and that shows up and that cares about that is in fact backed by the dollars and the assets that we say it is. And so there is no escaping that, that, that requirement, right? What we are, however, and this is a hill we are prepared to die on as a company, is entirely committed to the idea that this infrastructure has to be built and designed on public blockchains. And that we have to have what I describe as constantly upgradable financial infrastructure. It, it flies in the face of our competitor companies like a PayPal or a major payments firm that the technology stack on which USDC is enabled should promote competition, interoperability, and therefore be decentralized in the truest and deepest sense of the word. But if you want to issue a stable coin that is going to clear underwriting and, and ultimately not be vaporware or internet funny money, like literally so many are, and so many have been before us, then you need an actor and a, and a party that is in the middle that, that does the functions that Circle carries out. So I do not wish to monopolize this conversation this evening. However, if you are a centralized party that is issuing any sort of digitalized currency, there is no trusted third party. Now you can have all the all the desire and all the wishes and all the hopes and all the dreams of trying to convince somebody that you are a good actor. However, there the trust is that you are a good actor until you are not a good actor. And all of the intentions and meetings that you have with people who in power and people in the government and people with central banks does not change the fact that at any one moment in time, you have control of the supply of the USDC or any central bank digital currency. And yes, you know, at a certain point, you could call me a Bitcoin maxi, but I've been around a long time and I've seen a lot of stuff go down. And there's a reason why I come from this. And I guess that's all I want to say in the matter. 
No, that's great, John. And and look, all I can say in retort, but I don't want to steal Deidre's time or Williams for a quick question. All I can say in retort is Godspeed. And the power of the, the optionality is that this stuff may not be right for everyone, but everyone's right to participate should be protected, including yours. So I'm with you on your choice and, and Godspeed. And that is the typical response of anybody who comes from a centralized uh, digital currency. Thank you. Thank you, John. Okay, William, over to you if you'd like to introduce yourself. We may not have enough time, so if you could limit to one question. Yes, absolutely. Thank you, guys. And thank you, Dante, for your, for your thoughts. This is really educational. So very quick question. So since you've been, you know, working with or talking to senators and politicians, so what's your take on U.S. government's CBDC strategy? Do you think, do you think the government is going to have a strategy like centralized, like, China's government strategy, or do you see they're going to be more stablecoin pegged to USD in the future and welcomed by the government in a way? The best way to describe that. So yeah. we appreciate your thoughts on that. No, that's a great question. And I'm surprised it took this long enough for us to get there. So thank you, William. The, so I have a very, very clear, both public record and, and set of strong opinions on this that predate the publication of the Fed's Project Hamilton paper. Project Hamilton is the, the code name, if you will, or the name of the Fed's central bank digital currency efforts. My opinion is this, is that it's good to have the Federal Aviation Authority describing for the world what safe conduct and safe passage looks like in the skies, but the FAA does not build jet engines and fly planes. And so in my humble opinion, a central bank digital currency turns a central bank into a retail bank at best, or worse, turns the central bank into a competitor of the free market and a competitor of the two-tiered banking system, which is, which is problematic because if you care about multiple different forms of payments and payment optionality, including the one that John described, then you ultimately have to have this kind of creative destructive cycle in the free market subject to rules. Right. And that's where the FAA analogy comes into play. So that's my humble opinion. I also think you've seen a very qualified and modified stance from the Fed and from others where CBDCs and stable coins are clearly being argued for a degree of coexistence. Even Christine Lagarde recently gave a speech at the Atlantic Council and said as much that a well-regulated stable coin and CBDCs can coexist in the Eurozone and elsewhere. Thank you. Appreciate it. Thank you, William. Over to you, Deidre, for your question. Yeah, thank you. Thank you very much. And thank you for your time, Dante. So in this conversation, a lot of the examples have come from crisis. So blockchain being used as a humanitarian aid, you know, talking about the example of Ukraine, also America's late to renewable energy and we're just not catching up helping the underbanked or the unbanked have options. So what would you say to the, the argument that you're spreading the use of blockchain by taking advantage of those who are, are desperate or are in crisis? Does that question make sense? No, I get that. That's a, that's a, <laughs> that's a fair question. And, and, it's sort of like, as you can probably tell in some of my comments, I, I'm trying to be very honest about the financial inclusion fig leaf that a lot of crypto companies and fintech companies have been using historically and, and whether they had passed or failed a test of being good, honest, 
measurable counterparties on improving impacts for financial inclusion or improving mm -hmm. the ability to move money when all other financial systems fail. We, we should recall the Satoshi Nakamoto white paper and Bitcoin is produced after the 2008 financial crisis where we privatized gain and socialized losses to the tune of a society, but people had lost fundamental trust in banking, they were concerned about privacy, and so on. So, so much of this technology, John's statements say it all, was a protest vote to the system. And its best use, ironically, lately, has been to respond where the system had otherwise failed, right? The Venezuela example, the Afghanistan examples, opportunities, and, and certainly Ukraine all drive that home. Now, no one who has ever been on the receiving end of any support feels like they're exploited for receiving it. And so I think there's also a careful qualification when all other lines of support and other lines of defense have failed. No one at all who, who could have received a payment on WhatsApp, for example, would have ever complained that they could get a lower cost payment. And I think, frankly, it's one of the privileges those of us born in the right postal codes of the right countries completely take for granted that we won a postal code lottery. And, and, and these alternatives now exist that could bank people in new ways. But privacy is a luxury. And if you're poor and you need low cost payments in real time, whatever the form factor of that payment, whatever the technology stack that made it possible, great. Thank you. <laughs> and thank you for the question, Deirdre. Thank you, Deirdre. Heather, over to you, if you could introduce yourself and then ask your question. I think Heather saw you somewhere. <laughs> she was texting me. So Heather, I'll let you tell that story. Too. <laughs> uh, yeah, no, I did. I'm excited to listen to you again. I actually watched your talk down at Money 2020. So Oh, awesome. Was, yeah. So I was excited to see that you were on the schedule for tonight. I have a question just around, you know, how do we learn more about stablecoin? And as a retail customer, how do we start using stablecoin? Yeah, no, that's a great question, Heather, and, and great to see you virtually again. The so so I think there is there is a lot of writing out there. I have a paper that I wanted to point out that might be helpful because there's a lot of myths, and there then not all stable coins are created equal. I think if if there's one takeaway, so I have a paper um, available on Circle's website about the ten most common stablecoin myths, and a lot of them we've aired today, but there are others. Are they unregulated? Are they wildcat banking? Is you know is this whole thing a wild wild west and so on and so forth? So that might be a useful point since you're clearly very deep into payments and fintech innovation. And I think as a retail user, fundamentally, and this is again back to my point that while the management of USDC and the answerability to regulation and policy is a centralized activity, USDC is available on eight blockchains. And as a result of that, there are literally hundreds and hundreds of digital wallets that support USDC all over the world. And, and, I, and I would encourage listeners to participate. There's a great coffee shop in, in San Francisco that is receiving USDC payments for a cup of coffee. One of the most elusive questions we always get is, where can I buy a cup of coffee with a stablecoin? Well, as it happens, you could do that in San Francisco powered by the Solana blockchain. Again, another example of a third generation open source technology standard that is trying to solve for payments and the retail use case as well. 
But today, frankly, the most common use of a stable coin is in and out and, you know, dollar in and dollar out ramps for digital currency exchanges and DeFi and CeFi and sort of crypto capital markets. And that's the most common sort of use case today. But you're starting to see all of these green shoots for, for real world payments as well. Awesome. Well, I'm excited. I'll have to go check out um, your white paper on, on the Circle website. So thank you. Thank you. I also pinned it on at the top. I think it's only available for iPhones. I'm not sure if Android has this feature, but if you can see it, I also pinned it at the top here. So we are at six o'clock. Dante, I just want to confirm, could you stay slightly over? We have a couple more questions on stage. Either I stay over or I'm going to have a bunch of angry people coming after me later. So happy to hang out. <laughs> okay, awesome. <laughs> so Roland, over to you for your question. Thank you, Ambika. Roland here from London. Dante, you started the discussion this evening talking about risk. So my question for you would be, what do you see as the short and long-term risks associated with stable coins? And where does education of the consumer fit in there, given that you talked about funny money too? Mm. Over to you. Yeah, no, that's a great question, Roland. And I was just in your fair city, so I realize it's a little late there for you, but thank you for hanging out with us. In the, into the wee hours in London. One, there is a risk in that not all of these instruments are created equal, and many of them are very, very big, right? And so, so the, the, the global policymakers and regulators are not having Senate hearings and writing papers about crypto risks in vain. And so I do think there are potential risks in the category stablecoins around liquidity, there are certain risks in classes of stablecoins known as algorithmic stablecoins, where all of the monetary functions, the stabilization functions, the prudential functions, and so on are being done in software and in code with no party responsible for any of those activities. And, and I think there's been a teachable set of lessons about the perils of algorithmic stablecoins and the risk of fundamentally breaking the buck that the stablecoin loses its peg to whatever the reference asset is behind it. There's also, as you can imagine, complex systems fail in complex ways where, you know, the risk that gets you is not the one you anticipated and guarded for and against. And so, so I do think we, we have to be very mindful that public blockchains, if they are in fact an internet of value, they are in their dial-up phase and it's still early. And so, so as a risk person, I could I could sort of rattle off a whole host of them, but that would just give you a couple of the answers that I think at least keep me preoccupied. But but the world's policymakers and regulators are not writing these papers in vain. And I think many of the points they're making are reasonably well informed. Thank you for that, Dante. The consumer education side of things, what needs to be done there? Any thoughts? Yeah. So so there there I, I fall into the camp of you know, like all novel assets, never invest more in anything that you're not prepared to lose and don't invest or do anything that you don't understand. And I think, but unfortunately, many of our policymakers and regulators are also very maternalistic and paternalistic, right? That if it's new, it's taking advantage of someone. If it's free, then you're the product. I think some of these things are a little too cynical for my likes from the policymakers and regulators. So I come from a school of thought of do not do with regulatory enforcement what can be solved with disclosure. And, and if you set standards of disclosure, then consumers should have a lot of choice. And I, I think therein, you could have a lot of really good moves forward. In the stablecoin world, for example, if you can't provide an 
an attestation or a third party evidence that you have sufficient reserves to meet demands, then your stablecoin probably has a, a flaw in, in the show me the money category. That's a disclosure step. Circle does that voluntarily, but we think that should be a policy matter for the category. Thank you. Thank you, Rowan, for joining us. And uh, Neha, over to you. Hi, guys. Thanks for having me on stage. It's been a really interesting conversation to listen into. My question to Dante was more around just illicit financing and thinking mm. about money laundering in relationship to stablecoin. And I guess it's fresh on my mind because I just went to a conference that talked about different ways that money laundering is occurring and fraud schemes and things that have been occurring, especially because of things that have been happening in Europe. So I'm just wondering if you could speak on behalf of your thoughts related to uh, stablecoin and mm. kind of how that could impact the money laundering space. Yeah, no, it's a, it's, a, it's a great question. And obviously an enormous preoccupation of ours and very, very timely as well. Question, are Russian oligarchs moving billions of dollars of ill-gotten money to public financial ledgers that can record a transaction and a micropayment forever on the internet for anyone to see. And so the answer is a qualified no. And therefore, the idea that a stablecoin in which you have very little expectation of anything other than a dollar when you put a dollar in, at least in our case, is not a particularly great home for money launders. And frankly, I don't think a particularly great home for illicit finance. The alternative of analog, traditional, opaque, competitive banking with zero interoperability and zero technological transparency is literally the, mon the monopoly domain for illicit finance. If you wanted to launder $500 million, you're gonna pick up a phone and call a high street bank in my friend Roland's city, <laughs> or in some other jurisdiction, not to be unfair to London, you're not going to call a regulated digital assets company that has cutting edge financial forensics and compliance standards to effectively push out the bad actor and not penalize the good actor or cut off entire continents from the formal economy because of the fear of one bad payment. So, so I think in this domain, we have a lot of education to do. But the superpower of public blockchains, of recording and tracking and tracing transactions, even in completely decentralized digital currencies and, and uh, assets, is starting to produce complete exponential gains in financial crime compliance, which is frankly one of the reasons bodies like FinCEN and the Financial Action Task Force and others like this technology in terms of a crime fighting tool. Yeah, that was helpful. Thank you. And, and I got some writing on that too, Neha, that I can, I'm um, happy to share. Uh, a piece in particular in the Atlantic Council talks about the financial services privacy problem and how we are gathering data on behalf of consumers, KYC, know your customer requirements and so on, under the guise of managing risk, but with zero better outcomes. And so I'm a very big believer that, that these technologies allow us to do more and increase the perimeter of payments without sacrificing risk or, or compliance standards. Awesome. Thank you. Munisha, do you have any questions from the back channel? I do not. I think we did have one, and I think this is maybe I'm interpreting this question, Dante, is around the commercialization. Like when should the average customer be thinking about maybe 
converting to stable coins? Yeah. So, so, you know, I, I don't think of, so to be clear, my, my view of blockchain, and then I'll give you a qualification on that answer. The internet was a disruptive technology, right? If you were sitting there as a newspaper publisher at the dawn of the internet going, this is ridiculous. It is not going to affect me. Then you learned the very hard way and then you put up a paywall and then you acted very desperate and now you're launching NFTs, <laughs> right? The, the, um, so the internet was a disruptive technology. Blockchain on the other hand is an augmenting technology. And so I don't think of the idea that a stable coin exists to be a substitute for a dollar, nor a substitute for having a bank account, nor a substitute for having a credit card, if you, again, won the postal code lottery. Rather, it, is an, it, is, it creates additionality and optionality that you cannot use with any of those other media and medium of exchanges and, and methods of transitioning, transmissioning value. So, so I think that's where we're adding optionality, not substitution. In the same way that I think many blockchain companies today, ironically, are starting to look like digital twins of the very businesses and the very companies they were meant to disrupt. And it's an irony, right? That, that if you hold your own crypto assets, you have to manage the risks as if you were your own bank. And today there's an entire cottage industry that didn't exist five or 10 years ago that is providing that service for you. And guess what? Those firms are starting to look very much like the very firms they were supposed to disintermediate. So I don't think of this as substitution. I think of it as additionality. Hey, Dante, I have one more question for you. Sure. So do you think that the fact that China has their own CBDC and the fact that people are using the narrative that they have their own CBDC that we don't and we're behind in the race is a reason for or a narrative that Circle would use as a reason for them to be designated as the CBDC of the United States of America? Well, uh, so the, the good news is, John, I got an article for you too, titled, is, is, is America losing the digital currency space race? Because a lot of people are framing it that way, that it's a, it's a bit of a false equivalency. Uh, a country you're in contest with has something you do not have. Should you create a version of your own and replicate it? Or do you do something that is uniquely in your value systems? So I have an article out there. It's in Project Syndicate. I would suggest you take a look. Because it also, it's a point that predates any of the papers and any of the policy conversations that have happened in Washington on these issues. If nothing else, I want to say that to, to really highlight that we're not a company that cares about expediency. We're trying to do the right things the right way as a business. And we're trying to compete for the movement of money with firms that enjoy a monopoly, with firms that enjoy the, the implied public's backstop with Fed, with, with firms that enjoy a direct window into the Fed. We have none of those privileges, right? So no, I, but I would your, take a look your at intent that. Is to get, your intent is to get to the Fed. No, uh, no, no, not at all. My intent is to remain not very yours, well regulated. Not your circles. No, uh, circle, circle wants to become, circle wants to become a bank for reasons related to the types of activities we have to support in the verbs around digital currencies, right? How do you send, spend, save, and secure and provide digital commercial banking infrastructure? 
denominated in supporting USDC. We think ultimately these are commercial banking activities that, that are going to support a whole host of commercial use cases and retail use cases. And, and we don't live in a vacuum of rules. We don't live in a vacuum of those regulations. We want level a level playing field in the United States for technology-neutral activity-based regulation. Great. Well, thank you, Dante. We're coming to the end. I guess the last question I should ask you is, what's next? What should we expect more from Circle? I know you guys have a SPAC coming up. So what's next in the, in the journey? Yeah, well, I, I do think there there's some really, really, really important kind of in Neha's category of question. They're really important companion innovations to this Internet of Value we've been discussing tonight that if they do not exist, I think the fight is going to be massive and complex and uphill. And those fall into the category of trusted forms of digital identity and decentralized identity. And they fall into the category of continuing to advance standards and harmonization amongst companies, even if they're fierce competitors, around financial integrity and compliance. So Circle has been working very heavily with industry partners around digital identity standards and around approaches to things like the travel rule and conformity and compliance with the travel rule and things like that. That, that if you want to reach the next billion people with these technologies, but you don't want to subject the next billion people to undue risk, undue pressure, internet funny money, crypto needs a blue checkmark moment. And so Circle is very focused on what that looks like and very focused on making that uh, franchisable and shareable amongst leading companies in this space. Well, talking about the blue checkmark symbol, I guess, there is a duplicate of you on, on Twitter. So just as FYI. <laughs> oh, we got rid of them. Whoever oh, it was, did. imitation is the sincerest form of flattery, including <laughs> with digital currencies and people on Twitter, but we got rid of that guy. <laughs> well, he contacted me. I was very confused with the messages. And I was like, I don't think this person's legit. Yeah, don't worry. I'll never, I'll never shill you anything that I wouldn't do in public and certainly not in a private message. <laughs> <laughs> well, thank you. I appreciate you joining us for you know 75 minutes and share, helping us learn about stablecoin. It's a new thing and an emerging technology. So... For me, perhaps these were rudimentary questions, but I appreciate you taking your time and walking us through some of the easy questions that perhaps may have been asked of you. So thank you. None of them were easy, Ambika. Thank you both. And thank you, thank you, Monisha. And thank you, colleagues, for spending some time with me this evening. Thanks Very for sharing the knowledge. And yeah. all the best, Dante. <laughs> Cheers. Likewise. That's it for today. We hope you found the discussion beneficial and we're very grateful that you could join us for this session. We would also like to invite you to join our live conversations. Those are every Wednesdays at 5 p.m. Pacific on Clubhouse. Fintech Cafe is a passion project that we created with an intention to cultivate a community of thought leadership within the fintech space. Our employers, therefore, are not associated with the show, we're not endorsing any products, and we're certainly not providing any investment advice. For more information, please check out our website, fintechcafe.org. On the website, you'll find our upcoming schedule, as well as job postings at various fintech companies that we bring on the show. If you'd like to check out the previous episodes, you can find us on all major podcasting platforms under the name Fintech Cafe. We encourage you to leave a review and let us know what more you would like to hear from us. With that, we bid you farewell. Until next week, be happy and be safe. Thank you.